please take a seat, and as you do, I'd invite you to open your Bible, turn in your Bible, turn on your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. For those of you that are home, I encourage you to have a Bible open and ready, maybe even something to take notes with, because I'm going to suggest some things that you're going to want to look at later as well. And for those of you that don't know me, maybe I'm an unfamiliar face to you, uh, my name is Tim Robertson, and I serve as one of the pastors here at New Life Church in West Lynn. For those of you who do know me, it's great to see a familiar face, right? Well, we had no parade of children this morning, walking down the center aisle, carrying palm branches, palm fronds, which many churches do around the globe. The two years that Deb and I were in Bangkok, Thailand, pastoring a church there, that was a big deal to the 30-plus different nationalities represented in that church of 300, and we, we needed to do that. So we did. The two years we were there, we had a, a children's parade. The reason I bring that up is because I'm not going to be preaching on the triumphal entry, but today is the day that we commemorate the triumphal entry, or also known as Palm Sunday. This is the kickoff to a very significant week, the week of passion, the week leading up to the crucifixion of our Savior on our behalf, which we'll commemorate again here on Friday, Good Friday. And then, of course, when we regather a week from now, we'll be, we'll be excited, we'll be victorious, because Jesus was victorious, right? Amen? Over the powers of death. And so, even though I'm not preaching on the triumphal entry this morning, I think we're going to see a connection, because in a sense... Jesus begins his public ministry and he is triumphantly entering into a region quite different from what the expectation was, but we'll get to that in just a minute. We're early in the stages of a sermon series on the gospel according to Matthew. And I want to remind you of the purpose of Matthew's narrative. Throughout the gospel according to Matthew, his purpose is to present Jesus specifically as king. So a few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to stand here and to speak about the birth of a king. Two weeks ago, we, we talked about the coronation of a king as he appeared at the Jordan River and John the Baptist, his cousin, baptized him. Matthew has already shown us, right, in chapter 1, he's shown us the lineage of a king. He's shown us the circumstances surrounding the birth of a king. In chapter 2, we witnessed the worship of that king by some folks who traveled a great distance to get there, in contrast to a local king who got quite upset and ordered the death of what he thought was a rival king. Chapter 3 introduced the king's announcer, the king's herald, who came to prepare the way, none other than John the Baptist. And then we looked at the king's coronation and especially focused on that formal affirmation given by God the Father, that voice from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Just last week, Pastor Eric stood here and spoke about the first part of this chapter, chapter 4, and we marveled at how the king was victorious over the adversary, over Satan himself. At least I marveled when I listened to that. Whereas Israel, whereas the first Adam failed when they were tempted in those same wilderness areas by Satan, 
Jesus became our champion, our victor, and we marveled over his victory. Well, today, in the passage that I've just read to you, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, this is Matthew's final piece in his section of introduction. And Jesus is now fully prepared, and he's about to launch into his public ministry. When I was first given the assignment to preach on this passage, I began to look at these six verses, and it's like, okay, this is great. There's obviously some prophecy here. We'll need to look at Isaiah. But what's going on here? And then I noticed the second word in the passage, the word when. And I realized, well, maybe that's a way that I could unlock this passage. I could ask those simple questions of when and where and why and what, and ultimately who. By the way, I'd recommend to you, if, you're, if you ever encounter a passage of scripture, maybe you're doing a Bible study, just even on your own, and you're not quite sure uh, where to go, that's a great way to start. Those simple questions, when and where and why and what and who. And so I did that, and lo and behold, the passage just really unfolded. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning and with some of those questions and see if we can answer them. I want to remind you of something I said two weeks ago, namely that the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. So I very quickly want to call to your attention what some of the other gospel writers are saying about this instance that we're focusing on this morning. In Mark's gospel, the first chapter, verses 14 and 15, he writes this. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, slightly different terminology, and saying, quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, I, I love the connection already. We're talking here in Matthew, uh, Jesus' a challenge in verse 17 to, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And essentially Mark is saying, that's the good news. That's the good news that God has given is this idea of the kingdom of heaven. Luke takes a different approach. In Luke chapter 4, he starts in Nazareth and he has Jesus walk into the local synagogue, the synagogue of his boyhood home, right, in Nazareth. And he stands up as was the custom of the day. He's handed the scroll. He opens it to Isaiah chapter 61, as we know it, and he reads it to them, basically sits down and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's Luke's approach, and you can look at that in chapter 4. What I find intriguing, though, is if you'll look at your passage today, at your Bible, notice between verse 11 and verse 12. There's a blank space there, right? There's like a line, just a blank line between 11 and 12. Well, I'm here to suggest that there's a time gap between those two verses. And what I love about John's account is he devotes almost four chapters to describing the kinds of things that are going on in that time gap. Now, I'm not preaching on the gospel according to John this morning. We're going to stay in Matthew, but I do want to call that to your attention. It's a fascinating uh, comparison, and I'd invite you to invest some time sometime and read through those first chapters of, first four chapters of John, and you'll see how they fit in between Matthew's account here, verses 11 and 12. Now, Matthew omits the details that John shares because his purposes for writing his gospel account are different than John's purposes. But that doesn't negate the fact that they occurred, nor does it diminish their significance. 
So just a very quick review, just to whet your appetite. The kinds of things that happened during this time gap between verses 11 and 12 in Matthew 4, Jesus' first convert is mentioned. And it's a Samaritan. And it's a woman. Pretty significant. John goes into detail on that. Jesus' first miracle is described. And it's in Galilee in the city of Cana. Not Jerusalem, where the religious leaders may have expected him to perform his first miracle. His first healing is a Galilean nobleman's son. So already we begin, as we compare and contrast here, Matthew with John, we begin to see that there's a lot going on, plus the focus of attention is northward. It's into this region called Galilee. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so we'll hold that thought just for a minute. Here's what I think is a key idea for this passage of Scripture today in Matthew. King Jesus fulfills Scripture by launching his ministry. Now that's what's on the screen, but I want to add four things after that. He launches his ministry at the right time, in the right place, with the right message, requiring the right response. And that's what we'll look at here in a little more detail. Let's begin then with that first question of when does Jesus launch his ministry? Well, at the right time. Verse 12. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. When I preached a couple weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 13, we discovered that after 30 years of relative silence, except for something that he said in the temple at age 12, we don't know anything about Jesus. He's up in Nazareth. He's up in Galilee. He's being shaped and formed as a young man. But he suddenly, in chapter 3, he arrives on the scene, right? The uh, verse 13 of chapter 3 says, Then Jesus came. He came after 30 years of preparation. He comes to the Jordan River. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. And he is coronated as king there. Well, that was then. And this is now, verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested. But once again, Jesus is coming forth. This time, he's coming forth out of the wilderness. He's been tempted. We know from John's gospel that he uh, stayed in the south for a certain period of time. We don't know exactly how long, but he was doing a variety of things. But then when he hears that John's arrested, he leaves. That term arrested is interesting. It literally means to hand over, uh, to betray, or to deliver up, or to take into custody. The term is ominous. It speaks of danger. And in a sense, Matthew is foreshadowing here something that's going to happen, because several other times later in the gospel, according to Matthew, he's going to use that very word to depict Jesus, his betrayal at the hands of Judas, uh, his trial, his crucifixion. Now, we won't get the details of John's demise until much later. Uh, Matthew's not going to talk about that until chapter 14, and so we won't get to that for several months. But on the surface, it appears like, oh, wow, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist gets arrested, so I, I better get out of town, right? That's what it appears to be on the surface. But from an eternal perspective, let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul says. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 say this. But when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Folks, Jesus is on a schedule. He's never late. He's never early. He's always on time. Just because his cousin gets arrested here, that's not the reason. He is on a very prescribed, intentional schedule. And so he leaves Judea and heads northward to Galilee. The second question is, okay, we know what the time is. It's the right time. But what about uh, where is he going? Well, we're going to see that he's going to the right place. Verses 13 and 15. Let's begin with verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. It, the very uh, use of those two verbs, leaving and lived, and the way they're connected, leaving speaks of abandoning Nazareth, forsaking Nazareth. And it, that shouldn't surprise us if you read Luke chapter 4. They want to throw him off a mountain because of what he had said in the synagogue, right? But he specifically forsakes Nazareth in order to go and live. And the term there is better translated settle, to put your roots down, to dwell for a period of time. The fact that those two verbs are put together indicates a decisive move on Jesus' part. Once again, this is all about intentionality. This isn't haphazard in terms of geography. This is very, very intentional. He's leaving the remote uh, hillside village of Nazareth where he'd grown up, and he's going to this more populous lakeside town of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was, was larger, it was more significant than Nazareth, and it was strategically located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you're at home and you have a Bible open, just turn to the back if you've got maps, and I'd like you to find the map that deals with the time of Jesus. If you're here, sitting in this room, you may have a map as well. Look at that. If you're not, I'm the map, okay? So just my upper torso. Imagine the Sea of Galilee is my, is my face. The Dead Sea is way down here. The, um, and up on the, on the north, as you're looking at the map, the northwest corner, just the edge of the Sea of Galilee, is this town of Capernaum. The village itself enjoyed a, a prolific fishing industry. In fact, so much so that it demanded the presence of a tax collector's booth, which we'll encounter in chapter 9. Who's the tax collector? None other than the man who's writing the narrative that we're reading this morning. But it shows the significance and the size of the city. Also, chapter 8 reveals that there is a centurion who lives there in Capernaum. That indicates that it was most likely, likely some sort of political administrative center. We also know on a personal note that Capernaum is the hometown for Andrew and Peter. Let's skip ahead to verse 15. We'll come back to verse 14 in just a minute. Verse 15 reads, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. I want to camp out here just for a little bit. Well, not literally in Galilee, but I want us to get a sense of why geography is so important, why the answer to the question where is so significant. Matthew loves to link geography with Old Testament prophecy, and he's doing it again here. We know from Joshua chapter 19, when the 12 tribes were allotted to the nation of Israel, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that 
Nazareth would have been within the region of the area given to, to the uh, tribe of Zebulun. Capernaum, on the other hand, was in the region of Naphtali. So already we begin to see a fulfillment of Old Testament truth. More than 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the Assyrians had been used by God, his hand of judgment upon the people of Israel, to, to completely engulf this region. They just overtook this entire area of Galilee. And then from the time of Isaiah forward to the time of Jesus, many foreigners continued to live there. In fact, during the time of Jesus in the early first century, more than half of the population was Gentile. Well, that's significant, right? This geographic region, not particularly large, but incredibly populated with at least even more than half non-Jews. The Jewish historian Josephus, who, by the way, is a great source, not a biblical source, but a historical source that gives us great information that supports things that we find in Scripture. He lived during the time of Jesus and during the time of the Apostle Paul. Josephus claimed that this region of Galilee contained 204 villages, none with a population fewer than 15,000. Now think about that. That's, that's a sizable chunk of people kind of put into this one little small section of real estate around the Sea of Galilee. This region of Galilee was also considered the most fertile region in Palestine. Not only is it a wealth of fishing, but also in terms of growing things. In fact, there was a, a, a local sort of a proverb that was shared during the time of Jesus that said this, it is easier to raise a legion of olives in Galilee than to bring up one child in Judea. So even the people recognized the significance of this region. This phrase, the way of the sea, literally speaks of a trade route that ran from Syria that was uh, far to the, to the northeast, specifically the city of Damascus, running in a southwesterly direction toward the Mediterranean Sea. And as it did, it, it just kissed the corner of the Sea of Galilee. Guess where? The city of Capernaum. So the where of Jesus launching his public ministry is very significant. Plus, the term Galilee in and of itself is derived from a Hebrew word which means circle. So to call it Galilee of the Gentiles is literally saying that it's encircled by Gentiles. To the north and the east are the Syrians, to the west are Phoenicians, to the south are Samaritans. Now the standard view of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, those Jewish leaders that are in control, in power in Jerusalem, they believe that when the Messiah showed up, of course he would be engaged in ministry in Judea, specifically Jerusalem. We even see this when the Magi came and they asked Herod about this, and he asked the religious leaders, and they said, oh yeah, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's just right down the road here. That's the standard view of the religious authority. And in, in addition to that, Jewish popular opinion just ruled out Galilee as a possibility. There's too many Gentiles up there. <laughs> There's too many ethnicities up there. We don't want anything to do, to do with that. Right? When the Messiah comes, he's going to be dealing with us down here, down towards Jerusalem. Do you see what's going on here? What's Jesus doing? 
He's going against the culture. He's countercultural, super radical in terms of his approach. And even the geography speaks to that as he launches his public ministry. You know, God still doesn't act in accordance with our expectations. Even our religious expectations. No, God is going to do what God is, is going to do, what his plans are. And he often does his greatest work, right, among those that are lowly, despised, cast away. And we see Jesus launching his ministry in much the same fashion. He stays here a long time. and In fact, it's not until chapter 16 in Matthew's narrative that Jesus finally leaves Galilee on a permanent basis and heads to Judea. But he does that because he's heading to Passion Week. He's heading to this very time that we're commemorating this week and to the climax of the gospel. But remember what happens after the resurrection? Where, where did the angels, where did Jesus himself tell those who came to an empty tomb to where to go? Where were they supposed to go? Galilee. Why is that? Because in the last chapter of this narrative, Matthew is going to say, I want you to go out and make disciples of other nations. And where is he saying that from? He's saying that from Galilee of the Gentiles. So Jesus not only launches his ministry in a predominantly Gentile region, but he's going to relaunch his ministry by commissioning his disciples to do the same. Place is important in Scripture. So we've looked at, uh, at the when, we've looked at the where. I'd like to insert here, we'll go back to verse 14, I'd like to insert the question, why? And it's simply answered in verse 14, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. That's a frequent theme in Matthew's narrative. His central emphasis is to fulfill Scripture. He uses formula quotations to do that, and this is another example of that. He's already done it four previous times in the Gospel. This is his fifth time doing that, pointing to a, a fulfillment of prophecy. And the prophecy here that's being fulfilled that he's quoting here came from 700 years earlier in the time of Isaiah, his prophecy in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. God's people had been judged. He had used the Assyrians to do that, but it was a dark time. It was a distressful time. It was a destructive time. I think it's, it bears repeating, and you'll see that it's, it's almost verbatim, but I think it bears repeating. Let me just read this again. Isaiah 9, 1, 1 through 2. This is what's being quoted here. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Preparing for this message, I was reminded when I read that again, I was reminded of something that happened to Deb and me early in our time in Mississippi. For those of you that don't know, we invested nearly a decade, nine years, living and ministering in impoverished communities in the state of Mississippi. And if you've lived there as long as we did, you, there's only three syllables in that word, so you, you pronounce it correctly, Mississippi. I can remember, though, having dinner with someone in our neighborhood early on 
and they had a son named Jimmy. I think he was four or five. And we went from the, from the dinner table into another room to have conversation. And I remember Jimmy saying to his, to his dad, Daddy, cut on the light, cut on the light. And I, I kind of like, I'm from Southern California. I, I don't, what did he say? What does that mean? I don't have any idea, right? What would we say? Turn on the light. I'm not sure why we say that, but Jimmy wanted his dad to get electricity going so the light would come on so we could see what was happening so we would no longer be in darkness. I'm here to say that that's exactly what's going to happen next. We're going to see that it's Jesus who cuts on the light, who for those who are living in darkness, uh, makes light shine on them. And we're going to describe what that is here in just a minute. But before we do, let me remind you what Paul says. Paul says essentially the same kind of thing in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? This leads then to needing to, to better understand the what of this passage that we're looking at today. What is the right message here? What is the right response? And verses 16 and 17 answer those questions. Verse 16. It sounds just like what we read in Isaiah 9, because it's a quote. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This idea of people dwelling in darkness, this is more than just a passing moment. The prophet Isaiah is referring to God's people, the nation of Israel, who are habitually now in darkness, a darkness of mind, a darkness of spirit, and they're being judged as a result of that. And then he couples that with their they're not only dwelling in darkness, but they're dwelling in a region of darkness and in the shadow of death. He amplifies this by saying they're still dwelling as if in a continuing state, but, but now we see they're even in a territory that's been assigned to death. And historically, that's what had happened during the time that Isaiah is writing about. Well, he says that on, lemon, on them a light will dawn. This idea of light versus darkness is a consistent theme throughout Scripture. It always refers to the difference between the knowledge of and obedience to God versus the ignorance of or the disobedience to his revelation. Do you remember Simeon in the temple when Jesus was an infant in Luke chapter 2 and he recognizes who that infant is and immediately he cries out and prays to God and he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to, to your people, Israel. Look at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. Okay, He's going to cut on the light here. He's going to start this public teaching career in front of him. He began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Literally, he is doing what I'm doing right now. He's preaching. He is uh, heralding an official proclamation from the king. That's what Jesus is doing. And I want you to notice right away, at the beginning of this teaching ministry, what's he calling for? He's calling for action. 
This is a clear-cut call to act upon something. He's not just giving wise ideas from on top of a mountain somewhere, right? No, at the outset of his ministry, he is calling his audience to respond, to obey, to act. And everything he says, everything he does after this will follow on the heels of that call to action. Now, the exact statement here, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is the exact same message that John the Baptist, his cousin, had given back in chapter 3, verse 2. Yet, it's when John gave it, John was anticipating, and he didn't know exactly when that would happen, the arrival of the king, bringing in his kingdom. Well, now when Jesus says it, it's said with such great authority, and it's said with more urgency here than even John the Baptist. And what he means by that term repent is he's saying you need to change how you think. You need to change your mind. I like you need to think differently. That's essentially what repent means. I grew up in a church where we were taught that repent was a military command. If you're walking one direction and the staff sergeant says uh, repent and you, you turn around and go the opposite direction. Well, that's true, but it starts with the mind. Uh, the, the term in Matthew's original language speaks of a change of thinking, a change of mind orientation. So when John was calling for repentance, he was urgently inviting his audience there at the Jordan River to reorient their values, their habits, their thinking, their behavior in anticipation of something yet to come, this revelation of God's nature and his character and the reign of the king to come. Well, now, Jesus is saying, I'm here. So change your thinking. Change the way you view things differently. As a Baptist, I didn't know what the Westminster Shorter Catechism was until I got to graduate school. I just, we just weren't taught that. And that's unfortunate because it's a great document. Although written 373 years ago, it's a great document that still speaks to us today. Again, it's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it's a series of questions and answers that parents would use to train their children in understanding God's Word. Question 87 is significant. Now, just as an aside, if this is the shorter catechism, I'm not sure I want to know what the longer one is, right? 87 questions, and there's more beyond this. But here's the question. What is repentance unto life? Here's the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, love that word, doth, with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God. It gets better, though. With full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Isn't that rich? Do you see that? It's not just a turning away from something, it's a turning towards something as well. And that's what Jesus is calling his audience to. That's what Jesus is calling us to. Repentance is not just some sort of emotional state where we feel sorry because we got caught and we're having a hard time living with the consequences of our sin. That's not repentance. Repentance means having an entirely new attitude of heart toward our sin. Our attitude toward sin gets changed. I've got to ask the question, 
I don't know everyone who's in the room, most all, but not everyone, and I certainly don't know everyone who's on the other side of the camera that I'm looking at. But I've got to ask the question, has God worked that grace of repentance in your heart? Because if he hasn't, and if you're here, then come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you after the benediction about that. Well, the second part of Jesus' message here beyond the repenting aspect is this kingdom of heaven idea. You may not even know what that is. If I was to ask you to give a definition of the kingdom of heaven, you might be hard-pressed to come up with it. I, I know I was for decades of my life. Yet the phrase kingdom of heaven is found repeatedly in this gospel according to Matthew. In fact, Jesus' original audience, the sound, hearing the sound of his voice, Matthew's original audience, who would be reading his narrative, the first audience, they would have had certain conceptions, certain ideas of what the kingdom of heaven was. On the one hand, there were those who held a nationalistic view of overthrowing the oppressive Roman Empire. Uh, the Pharisees, for example, held to that perspective. Others, on the other hand, the masses, they thought of, well, that's something off in the future. That's something eschatological, and that's a fancy word for the future. That's some hope we have in for the future. And in a sense, we're no different from that. We have similar ideas about that. But we know from the subsequent teaching of Jesus in this book of Matthew that when you, when you um, combine these, these two things here, this call to action, which involves a change of thinking, it results in a whole new way of living under God's control. Now, I've just teed up the Sermon on the Mount. I've just teed up Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We won't get to that until later in our sermon series, but that's where Jesus is going to describe. He's going to describe this total sovereign dominion of God over all of creation, all of this world, and all of our hearts. Well, we, we began with the questions, right? When and where and why and what. We know the who, right? We know the who. It's King Jesus who fulfills Scripture. And as he launches his public ministry, he's doing it at just the right time. He's doing it in just the right place with just the right message, and he's calling for the right response. In a sense, Jesus has cut on the light. He has dispelled the darkness. Well, that's great. We're left with one final question, though. So now what? Or, so what, Tim? What am I supposed to do with that now? What is the right response? Uh, particularly when we think about this kingdom of heaven idea, this total control, total dominion of Jesus over our lives. Earlier this week, I listened to an address, actually watched a video clip of a very popular author. I won't name him, uh, but he was speaking in a church in Manhattan, New York. The church, by the way, is named in memory of Adoniram Judson, the first American Protestant foreign missionary. Uh, this gentleman sat on the, on the stage and said this. Jesus was a revolutionary, 
And the job of the Christian is to revolutionize society, to liberate society from the powers on earth that are oppressing humanity. Sounds like the Pharisees, actually, and he missed it by that much, right? But I have to agree somewhat with his assessment because he goes on to say he contrasts his view with what he calls savior theology, that theology that teaches that the job of the Christian is to go out and save these individuals who are behaviorally deficient. Well, if that's all that Bible teaching Christians are presenting to the world, then I can understand why he's missing it. He's not grasping it. The irony of all of this is that he was sitting on the stage directly in front of the the wall where engraved on that wall is the Great Commission. And as I watched that, it just just blew my mind how uh, he's missing it and leading others astray. But you know what? I grew up in a home where we rarely, if ever, talked about the kingdom of heaven. I can't recall a sermon from my childhood in the Baptist church I grew in where we discussed the kingdom of heaven. I I guess it was a concept that was sort of like pie in the sky when I die, right? If we discussed it at all. So if you, you are a person of faith sitting here listening to this this morning, Think about this. What was it that you were invited into? Do you recall? Were you asked, like me, to make some sort of a decision for Jesus, a transaction that would secure my ticket so I could get by Peter, so I could get into the gate and get into heaven? Maybe raise a hand or or walk an aisle, which I did many times in my youth, or pray a prayer. Or... Were you presented with the truth claims of King Jesus? That he is sovereign Lord over the universe, this entire world, and especially the human heart, my heart. The question we're left with is, have we turned from living our lives according to our desires, our agendas, our plans, our hopes? Are we reorienting our thinking based on his kingdom agenda? Jesus calls us to a lifestyle a kingdom lifestyle. It's secured by his death on the cross and his resurrection from an empty tomb. But it's, it's a daily reset of priorities, our priorities, to match his priorities. I want to close this in a word of prayer, but I want to do that on the heels of just half a minute of silence. And during that, I, I urge you to just simply ponder these questions. What do I need to repent of today? In other words, what do I need to turn and change my thinking about today? And how might I step into his kingdom agenda for me today? Let's do that. Let's invest the next 30 seconds and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, 30 seconds goes by so quickly, not nearly enough time to really press into and ask those questions of you. 
But would you continue by the power of your Holy Spirit, continue to convict us where we need conviction, to think through, to ponder, to process, what is it that we have accepted from you? Help us to reorient our thinking, to change our thinking, to repent of our thinking, and to embrace your kingdom, your rule, your reign over our hearts and over all of creation. And Father, we're asking for this because we want to glorify you. We really do. We want to draw others to you as well. So may it start with us. Lord, do your work of grace in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name.